Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Breakout Con 2019. Episode 201, Board Game Design Basics. Presented by Alicia Tolk, Nikki Valens, Shannon McDowell, and moderated by Daryl Andrews. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you. Uh, if you are here for basics of board game design, you're in the right room. Uh, if you're not, well, welcome and uh, hang out with us. Um, I'm going to let uh, the panelists introduce themselves, but when they do, I'm, uh, they're also going to share a little bit about themselves, like what, what's kind of their role in this whole world of board games, and also share uh, kind of the games uh, that they're working on or they're maybe known for or uh, that kind of thing, and uh, also just what experience they have with like cons and all this kind of stuff. So I'll start on the far end and put Shannon on the spot and then work, sure, work their way over to me. So I'm Shannon McDowell. I'm a board game and puzzle designer. So I have a series of escape room board games that's coming out with Maple Games, actually. And I also work for the Wilfrid Laurier University Game Design and Development Program. So I've been assisting with the analog game design classes there, and I do research on escape rooms. So I've, there's one of, I'm kind of one of the designers, kind of. I came in late, but I've helped design the puzzles for the Red Bull Escape Room World Championship that's happening in April. Cool. Uh, I'm Nikki Valens. I'm a freelance game designer, uh, formerly with uh, Fantasy Flight Games. I've done a whole pile of different board games, uh, Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, uh, Legacy of Dragonhold, Arkham Horror 3rd Edition, and the recently announced Quirky Circuits as well. And working on a couple new things as well. Uh, so I tend to get pegged as a, uh, a thematic and narrative designer, but I like to do all kinds of strategy and story stuff and character-driven stuff as well. All right. Is that all? Yeah. Okay. So hi, I'm Alicia Talk. Can you guys all hear me? Yeah? We're all good? Okay, sweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, thumbs up in the back. Okay, so I am a freelance board game designer. I am half of the Dancing Giant Games Design Company. Well, not company, just people. And Kevin, the other half, is sitting right there in the front, so if you ever have any questions for him, he's also great. Um, We have one game that is currently out, Lady and the Tiger Favor, so that variation is ours. It's by Jelly Bean Games. We have another one coming out, hopefully, in October on Kickstarter. Um, Working name right now is Flytrap Frenzy, if I remember correctly. Then we have a couple others with publishers going on. We'll see what happens there. But mostly we, well, I personally, I love playtesting. I love developing. I love editing. So we try and go to the cons that we can go to because money. Money. So we only go to a couple a year. And then besides that, we come to Snakes and Lattes Designers Night here in Toronto. And then recently we ran a convention two years ago called Play and Pub which had designers come in with their prototypes and come in, some see some publishers just get playtesting in. And then this year, we are running Protospiel North. So Protospiel is 
throughout the entire United States, basically, at this point, major points. And then, so we've branched back into Canada. It used to be in Canada under Francois Valentin, but he is not in charge of it anymore. We are, kind of thing. So that is happening this year in May. So if you have any questions about that as well, it's just a complete prototype convention. And I have examples of prototypes that we'll talk about if need be. But yeah, any questions about that, just let me know. Cool. So uh, I'll start us off, and then we'll kind of pepper around, and then there will be a little bit of time at the end for questions. Uh, So if you have anything, write it down, please. We'll have a little bit of time, and then if we can't get to it afterwards, you can maybe uh, talk to a designer afterwards. But I wanted to kind of, because this session is called The Basics of Board Game Design, kind of chronologically just walk our way through game design. So let's start with the first question of just kind of like, What's your process early on when you have an idea? What do you do? What's some tips? Um, some of this you may have heard. Some, you know, you listen in for like tools or questions or ideas that might help the beginning process. And anyone who wants to start, jump in. Sure. Uh, so for me, I always start with a theme or a story, just something that sparks an idea. And it could be as simple as I want to do a game about cats. Or it could be as complex as I want to do a game where a bunch of people are working together to build a amusement park ride in an actual haunted house and the ghosts don't want them there. And those are both literally two games I'm working on right now. <laughs> so some, sometimes it's really complex, sometimes it's really basic, and then I brainstorm a ton. I write a couple pages of notes and then I write out the cards and I get something to the table and start playtesting. So that happens pretty quickly for me. That's pretty much my experience with starting off a design. I usually start with, like you are saying, either a theme of like, what do I want this game to be? Or sometimes I start from the other end of it mechanically of just some kind of mechanic that I wanted. For instance, Quirky Circuit started with the idea of, I just wanted to make a cooperative programming game mm-hmm. of some kind. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of worked from there. Uh, but yeah, just kind of, Getting that idea, uh, getting a lot of your, what really inspired you about that, mm-hmm. uh, especially if there's other games or other types of media that inspired this idea that you had, and kind of getting that down in a rough vision document is a nice starting step, because then you can always go back and look at that again and see what were your inspirations uh, later during the design and try to kind of go back to, why was I trying to make this? Is it you know, meeting that original vision that I had for this thing, and what did I want to get out of this design? Mm-hmm. Another tip that I usually find is what feeling are you trying to emote? Emote, or if it's a feeling that you're trying to evoke in people, and then I also really recommend books. Write everything down, all of your ideas from the beginning to the end. So even before you start putting it on cards, or like if it's just in here, write it down. Seriously, write it down. I can. Or if you're not an analog person, then have a Google Doc. Yes. <laughs> yes. Somehow get it so you can see it visually as well as it not just being in your mind. Because then some things can slip through the cracks and you can forget about, oh, yeah, there was this really cool thing. Oh, it's gone now. Mm-hmm. Right? So definitely write stuff down, Google Docs, voice, like audio if you need to, if that's what works for you. But definitely starting there, get your idea down to start with. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go back to you. Mm-hmm. We have all these bits and stuff. Maybe start going from, okay, we have this idea. 
what some of them maybe like prototyping mm-hmm. steps you do or or things that you recommend other people do. I'll start with Alicia, but then jump in with other tools or or uh, steps that you do in the prototyping process. Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing I found in the prototyping process, I did the same panel last year, and a lot of people were like, how much money do I spend on art right away? Not necessary, especially when you're just developing your game. So I have a bunch of rough stuff that I've brought, but as you can see, cardstock, Sharpie. Cardstock, Sharpie, pen. So Kev, do you want to <laughs> do something with this? <laughs> Just hand them out. We'll collect collect them back at the end. Literally just cards and Sharpie. Just cards and Sharpie. And we had a board for one of our games printed on paper. I designed this in Microsoft Paint. (laughs) It's circles and lines. Like, so, biggest thing there is it doesn't have to be, no, it's okay. Yeah. Doesn't have to be super expensive right away, right? So, some of it, like. These, These are my hex tiles. For yeah. my current game, they are literally just cardstock, and I actually printed them because I can't make perfect hexagons drawing. But mm-hmm. yeah, just printed and with clip art. I just searched um, tombstone icon, and that's what I got off Google. Yeah, prototype doesn't matter, right? So the art doesn't have to be fantastic, obviously, but as long as it gets the point across and the card has the information it needs on it, that's more important than having something pretty on it to begin with. Making sure that your information on your game is clear concise, and it shouldn't leave any questions. Anything else? Uh, one other thing when you're prototyping is don't feel afraid to just steal pieces out of your other games to <laughs> have substitutes. Yeah. Like, use minis from other games that do what you mm-hmm. need them to do. This is a dog. It's also a robot. <laughs> or, if you want to get really creative, make weird little paper craft things that <laughs> serve your purposes. That's, awesome. That's so yeah. cool. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and the dollar store is your friend for mm-hmm. initial components. Mm-hmm. These little tiny ghosts, I literally designed a mechanic in my game around these ghosts. I completely redesigned that part because I found them in Dollarama at Halloween, and I was like, I have to use these. They are so perfect. So you know, you get like twenty-five ghosts for a buck, and uh, they are now part of my game. We also bought centimeter cubes, which you can find on Amazon. It's a really good teacher's resource, but we also use those for points, trackers, currency, whatever you need it to be at this point in time. So we have a bunch of different colors of those, and those work really well as well for beginning stuff. Great example. Uh, as we keep going then, you're prototyping some stuff. Let's talk about the play test experience. And that might, I mean, we're play testing things throughout especially maybe focus on some tips and suggestions on how to run a good playtest session and also maybe uh, like how to be a good playtester, like any advice you would give Mm -hmm. to others. I would say for your first playtest, so you've just gotten your, you know, blank cards with Sharpie on them or your board printed out on paper, play it yourself first. We call that solo testing. So play through as if you're multiple characters, if you can. Some games don't do that as easily as others. Uh, But play it through because guaranteed in the first 10 minutes, you're going to be like, all right, that failed. That was terrible. Um, But it's nice to get that out of the way in your first solo tests so that you're not taking up your playtesters' time because it is hard to get playtesters. So it's always a good way to start with a couple solo tests and then maybe one or two 
you know, people that you know are decent and will help you play through the game and figure out what works. Yeah, uh, I'd like to piggyback on something you said there, which is finding those failures early. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I really like to, to tell designers that are, you know, looking for tips is to don't be afraid to fail. In fact, fail faster. Like, the mistakes that you make and finding those mistakes, those are the fastest way for you to learn. <laughs> fail <Literally>. faster! <laughs> A playtesting journal that is coming out is on Kickstarter right now. <laughs> Not friend at all. Fail faster is just the thing I say. Keep going, Nikki, and then I'll I'll jump uh, in. But yeah, like finding those mistakes, making those mistakes is how you're gonna learn the fastest of what you can improve about your game, or even things that just aren't really working. And maybe you just want to go in a different direction, or maybe those things just need to get cut. And you'll find those things that much faster if you're not afraid to just try something instead of thinking it has to be perfect before you go out and play test or show it to someone. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And then fail faster playtesting journal. It takes you from this kind of notes, where it's just everything all over the place, to really concise right into it. So there's a bunch of pages that are coming out. Like I said, it's on Kickstarter right now. Jay Cormier designed it. He is fantastic. But eventually, it's just to make you fail faster. It's to get the information down faster to make it more concise. And it tells you exactly what to look for in your play tests, right? So it tells you actually what um, what questions to ask, what exactly like rules are. You get to write your play testers down. Like I can pass this around too. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> so just start it down and pass it around. So that can be seen. But yeah, that's definitely one way to help make it fail faster. So along those same lines, what are kind of like, for instance, the fail faster journal? But what are some questions? Either you ask playtesters or you ask yourself to evaluate kind of the playtest session. So what are what are some of the things that you're looking for and what are some of the things that you're asking and when do you do that? Like what what does a session look like when you play test it? So I keep a close eye on how people are acting. Um, I Are they looking bored? Are they checking their phone during the game? That's probably not great. Um, what are they doing? And then after the game, I asked them questions. So I noticed this happened during the game. How did you feel during that point? You know, or was there a point in the game that you felt really dragged or that didn't work for you? Or was there something you wanted to do in the game that you couldn't do? Um, it really varies by the game. Uh, and it depends on what you're looking for. In initial play tests, very first play tests, you're probably just seeing, is it fun? Is there something there that are players enjoying themselves? Are they having fun? Are they working towards a goal? Are they feeling the emotion that you want them to? That would be the initial starting point. And you don't even necessarily need to ask questions for that because you can tell. Even if the game's completely broken, if they were smiling and laughing, you're probably on the right track. That was really no. good. Okay. That was fabulous. Yeah. yeah. I, I have been teaching lately. I have been <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Audience engagement. Engagement. If they are engaged, you've probably got something okay going on. Why they're engaged might not be completely successful. It might be some of the broken parts of the game or the not as polished sections of the game. But you can take that and polish it. You can take that and incorporate it into your game or change it around it. 
but you also have to think about what your audience thinks. So although it is your game and your design, and you might think it's the most beautiful baby you've ever seen, it might not be to your playtesters. So be open to your feedback, okay? So if they have ideas, when you're talking at the end of your game session, don't go, oh, no, 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 I like it like that. I like it the way it is. Always be open for feedback, because that's really important. And especially if you want to have more playtesters in the future, you don't want to be the person that's known as, they didn't take my feedback. They didn't really want to hear it. You don't have to take the feedback. Just write it down and acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. But if you have five different playtesters who all say the same Same thing, thing. probably that's something you're going to want to look closely at. Yeah, which is why keeping notes, Google Docs, audio logs is important. Because if you have 10 playtesters all have the exact same comment, whether it's positive, negative, or in between, that's something that most people are seeing about your game. And it's something that you need to realize and something that you need to like look at. It's not just a coincidence 10 times in a row. <laughs> yeah. So so say you've been doing some playtesting. How do you know to kind of progress your design if that means kind of making it look prettier? Or like, what, are, what are some ways that you know you're getting closer uh, to your game being ready? And then what steps do you do at that stage? Like... Going from real rough, are there are there some tools that you use or some steps that you do to to progress the the, the game from from uh, mm-hmm. stick people? Yeah, actually, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, Nikki, because you design very different games than <laughs> yeah. I do. Uh, it, it tends to be kind of in the middle to late phase that you you really have to start just really developing what else needs to get done because I mean if you're if you have art in your game, either you're hiring artists or maybe you have uh, at least the, the talent to make some lovely stick figures Thank to get you. the point across of, of what you want on these cards or components of any kind. Uh, but one thing that is also important is to get the rules mm. in a way that they're feasible so that someone else can play the game without you necessarily teaching it to them. Uh, there's also a whole section of testing that is just about testing the rulebook, and that is a very, very important part of it. Uh, so in that middle area there is where you really want to be focusing on your rulebook as well, because as you're writing those rules in a way that can actually teach someone the game just by them reading it, you're going to find out a lot of other things about your game. You might find out that some of your mechanics are more complex than you thought they were, or more difficult to learn than you thought they were. Uh, and being able to put all of that information on paper in a way that can convey how the game is supposed to function will not only show you a lot about where where your game needs a little bit more love in order to get to where it needs to be, uh, but it is also just good to test that system because the first rule book you write will not be the final rule book. <laughs> You're going to have to revise it a lot uh, in order to get it there. and you'll definitely forget some rules along the way. Mm-hmm. I've, most of the FFG games that I've worked on have last-minute uh, additions to the rulebook of, oh, we forgot to tell you what happens with this token. Oops, mm-hmm. get it in there. <laughs> yeah, like I said to begin with, the art doesn't matter as much as making sure your game works. At this point, if you're just designing a game, 
make sure your game works. So once you get to blind testing or guided play testing or even you sitting in on the play test, just try and get somebody else to read your rule book. Try and get somebody else to explain the game. Because depending on your goal, if you eventually want this in people's homes, I don't know, depending on YouTube, it doesn't come with you as an instructional video in the box. So somebody else has to be able to interpret what you're saying and what your ideas are to make your game successful. And if they cannot, then your game could go completely awry. And they could say it's a horrible game. Well, my rules just weren't great, right? So your game may be fantastic, but if they can't understand your rules, then it's not great. Along those same lines, though art doesn't matter much for a prototype, graphic design does. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure that if you're using icons, they're clear and distinguishable from each other. You want to make sure that um, people can see numbers if it's laying on across the table that everyone sitting around the table can see what's on that card if they need to. Um, make sure that your graphic design is clear. Sorry, I just have some examples here. I don't know if you guys can see this or not. But so this is some basic design. I have some other cards here. You guys can come up front later, but you can see we have our iconography symbols here with some values underneath them, and then we have iconography symbols here. So it's just really simple, easy to read, and then with that there comes a player guide as well. So graphic design, iconography, especially on your beginning games, super helpful. Yeah, and make sure your icons don't rely on color. Yes. Accessibility. A lot of your playtesters will probably, you know, be colorblind because it's a pretty high percentage of the population. So you want to make sure that they're able to access it, which is why most of my games are black and white to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if they do involve a color, make sure that there is also a symbol, an icon mm -hmm. to go along with it to make sure that it is accessible. Uh, piggybacking off the graphic design, what, what you're both talking about is essentially allowing the graphic design to enhance the gameplay mm -hmm. rather than hinder it, which is something that, as you get deeper in your design, becomes a challenge. Uh, it's very easy to overthink a graphic design uh, and to treat it similar to art mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. merely a visual flourish of some kind. But that graphic design should really be there to help your players to understand the information you need to give them and to make that information more intuitive them, intuitive for them to use. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So going back, actually, Nikki talking about rule books. Mm -hmm. I think we could talk a little bit more <laughs> about rule books in general. What, what, uh, as people are working on their games, what things should they be asking themselves? Any tips on how they should be laying out or structuring their rule books? You know that whole topic. Uh, I don't know about others, but I hate doing rule books. Oh, so, so what what do you need to do, and what are why are there so many iterative processes to to the rule book? So maybe talk through that. Kind of oh man, I've stage. been writing a rule book this week for a four player asymmetric game, which of course means that's five rule books, one for each player and one for the overall game. I hate myself right now. Um, yeah, so general outline of a rule book. You want a thematic overview, so a short paragraph that's who are you and what are you doing in the game in thematic terms. Probably a mechanical overview, which is then take your worker or pieces, place them on the spaces, and take those actions to get the king's gold. I don't know. 
Uh, that's not a game. Beautiful. That's <laughs> it. Yep. So awesome. Awesome. Um, you want a component list. You want how your game is set up. You want probably, depending on the complexity of your game, you probably want a round overview. So what is a player doing in a round? And then you want to break down all the possible actions within that round. So what are they doing for each action? What's each player doing on their turn? Um, you want to go into any special rules. Edge cases. Edge cases Edge in cases. more detail. So maybe you just you take three actions per turn, but sometimes there's a battle. And then you need to go into all the battle rules. Um, and then you also want in there somehow, probably you want to explain it briefly at the beginning of your rule book, but then go into more detail at the end, is how do people win? Um, how do you win? How do you score? What gets you points? How does the game end? That's always important too. Basic overview. I think, I don't know if I missed anything in there. No, that was great. But, uh, and that'll vary depending on your type of game. And, uh, oh, let me tell you. Okay, so writing my rulebook this week <laughs> has been driving me insane. And I have changed mechanics in my game. I've not playtested them yet. That'll happen this weekend. Uh, I've changed mechanics just because I go to explain them in the rulebook and I cannot figure out how to write them so that it makes sense. I can explain them in person, but I go to write them and it's just, nope. That is not coming. That is like a half a page for one mechanic. It's not going to happen. So it's changed. So I can, if I can explain it in a sentence, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, anything beyond that, it's got cut. So keep that in mind. That is a perfectly valid reason to cut things from your game. That is almost exactly <laughs> what I was about to say. <laughs> and then you kept talking. Yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Um, absolutely. Like what I was talking about of starting your your rulebook writing early isn't necessarily just making your first draft early, but mm -hmm. whenever you're working with a new action or new mechanic, whatever it, it is, uh, think about how to concisely explain what that thing is. Uh, and if it takes more than two sentences, think about how long that's going to be on a page of a rule book. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that should be a, a key to, like, a cue for you to like, kind of, maybe I need to simplify this. Maybe mm -hmm. there's too much going on here. Uh, or it's going to be too complex or difficult to learn. Uh, but if that's a super core component of your your game, <laughs> maybe that complexity is needed, but it's that's something to take a look at, is yeah. to really uh, analyze each of your components and your mechanics and tell yourself, it, does this need to be as complex as it is? Can you simplify it in some way? Yeah. Coming from the designer of Arkham Horror. <laughs> I simplified our <laughs> Yeah, that and then true. one more thing I want to add in there. Two things. Make sure your rulebook follows the natural order of progression that the game goes through. Mm -hmm. Don't put your win conditions or how to win right at the beginning when we don't know how to set up the game yet. Well, but make sure they do know yeah, how yeah. they win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Just you need to the, know that first yeah, of all. Yeah. Otherwise, the rest don't make any sense. Yeah. So, like, don't put your edge cases first. No. <laughs> don't put your edge cases first. So make sure it's the natural flow of the game. Also, you can use this little rule book that you have when you're explaining for your playtesters. So that, that also helps with the natural progression of explaining your game, helping your playtesters go through it. If they need that rule book, it's in order, it's ready to go, and it also helps you when you're pitching for the first time or like just explaining your game. 
because you can get nervous, guys. It happens. So you have that there in front of you to help you out as well. So if it's nice and concise for you, it's nice and concise for other people too, hopefully. I want to give us an extended Q&A, but before we get there, um, I'm going to do one last question, then we'll start tackling questions because I would imagine actually things will trigger other stuff. But uh, before we get there, and so that you can think ahead of what question you want to ask, um, what about uh, just a few just overall tips or suggestions while going through the process and some either uh, tools, and tools could be even questions to ask yourself or, or actual practical things you use um, that you wish you knew before. So kind of uh, talk to your younger self. What, what, what did you wish you knew or some tips or encouragement along the way? Uh, well, we were just talking about rule books and playtesting. I can jump forward a little bit in the process of that. Uh, we talked about blind playtesting earlier, which is the process of having someone learn the game with the rulebook that you've created uh, where they've never played it before. Uh, one of the ways that I like to do that is to get some people that have never played the game before, if they don't really know anything about it, and have one of them learn it and teach it to everyone else, and I will just silently observe. Mm -hmm. And if they ever try to ask me a question, I will just stare at them. <laughs> uh, it's, it's really... You, you can learn a lot that way uh, of just... Not only do you see where they think they have a question, where they're not quite sure if they've read the rule correctly, because they might look at you and, and try to go like get some information out of you, uh, but it's also just great to see did they make any mistakes along the way? Did they say something correctly, but it was misinterpreted by another player? So you'll, you'll see all of that stuff when it's not you teaching it uh, and not you giving feedback about how they're teaching it. Mm -hmm. um, don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Go to your friendly local game stores or your local designer nights. So it's great to play test with yourself and your friends but then you have to expand beyond that as well if you want it to go in a farther direction or want to take the development a little more seriously. So like Snakes and Lattes has one, a designer's night every third Monday. There's Protospiel North, which I talked about at the beginning. There's ProtoTO in Toronto. And then there's a whole bunch of other conventions as well where you could just sign up to play test your games and get it in front of people that haven't seen your game before, which is so important to get other people's opinions, not just from people you know. And then from there, blind playtesting and then... Yeah, it goes on the way. Same things I already said as before. Be open to feedback. Art is not necessarily as important, but graphic design is. And then, anything else? Uh, well, I'll just say that what I wish I had known when I started designing is I am not very much a Sharpie on cards person. I, that does not work for me, for my process. Mm -hmm. So I go directly to Illustrator. I make very basic cards but I make them in Illustrator and InDesign. And that lets me save file versions going ahead. So every time I make changes, I have, it's like, now it's 2.1, 2.2, and oh, major mechanic change, now it's 3.0. Mm -hmm. um, and I save my versions of my files. And for me, that's a lot easier to keep track of iterations mm -hmm. than having stacks of cards that constantly change. Mm -hmm. So feel free to make your process whatever works for you. You know, I learned it took me probably several games before I realized I am not good at writing out on cards. That's just not what works for me. But 
digitally is. And then I can just print it out. I order card sleeves in bulk in multiple colors. So each deck has a different color for my games and I use Cards Against Humanity to, to back them. And that's what works for me. <laughs> of course I have card sleeves of different colors. Like these, yes. Just card sleeves of different colors. You can also get clear ones too. Those exist yeah. as well. Oh, and fun little tip from Sen, which he would say if he was here, I'm sure, is print your cards at 90% when you're printing them mm -hmm. off, and then they fit into card sleeves a lot easier. Yeah. You try for them 100%, they won't fit very nicely. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, I want to give you an extended time, and also your questions may trigger more things, so don't feel like you're limited to just the subject parts that we've talked about. You know, we're here, and uh, but try to focus them on kind of the basics of board game design. There's other topics or other seminars that you're getting into. Save it for, for that session. But. Questions? Yeah. Um, how much do you need to consider uh, like material uh, limitations when you're actually designing? So, like, hey, I can't do this as a token because I can't do this in wood, or um, and and how much do you think about materials as you're designing? I, I don't think about it hardly at all um, because it can always change. Mm -hmm. If something can be a mini, it can be a standee, or it can be a meeple. There's really nothing differentiating those besides do you want it to be wood, do you want it to have art, and do you want it to be a 3D sculpture? And each of those has different price points. So start your prototypes with meeples because why not, or pawns even, mm -hmm. whatever, whatever works. And if you're going to pitch to a publisher, just be open to changes where they're like, oh, well, these are cool tokens, but we want to make them meeples. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, it uh, depends a little bit too on uh, what the type of game it is and mm -hmm. how you mm -hmm. intend to have it manufactured and, and published. Uh, so they're, I'm, I'm gonna, contradict you yeah. ever so slightly yeah. uh, the the weird little papercraft robot that I held up earlier is an early prototype from quirky circuits and the reason I created that is because the minis that come in that game are actually functional pieces of the game mm -hmm. that is to say the robots themselves can hold tokens physically mm -hmm. and that is part of the game as they move around or rotate the placement of those tokens and where they are holding it matters mm -hmm. uh, so if that is important to your mechanics, mm -hmm. then you ha do have to think a little bit more about what is that material, is that a mini or a, a token or a standee, what is it and how does it function? Um, but for the most part, if it doesn't need to have that mechanical piece to it, exactly what Thable said, it doesn't really matter what it is and whatever is the easiest to physically move around the board or use is the best way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I will if, agree with your adjustment. Yeah, <laughs> and if you can't find something that you want that works for you, make it yourself. So we tried to find standees for things, for tokens, and for um, like little bananagram tiles. Couldn't find them, so we made our own out of styrofoam. We glued them together with hot glue. Like simple white doesn't really matter at the beginning. Yeah, unless it unless it's an important part of the mechanics of how your game plays. Mm -hmm. Like, if you want your board to be made of wood because it's cool, that's a little bit different than it being based on your mechanics of your game, right? Because if it's like a cogs working together like a puzzle, 
then you probably wouldn't do that out of like plexiglass. Hopefully, maybe you have. I don't know, but yeah. Acrylic cogs. Yeah, yeah. Acrylic cogs, right? Let's leave on the name of the game. Uh, <laughs> any other questions? Yeah, in the back. Uh, so earlier on, we were talking about kind of like themes and like mechanics and how they mesh together. I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into that. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Could you maybe walk me through your thought process of like, I want players to feel this, and then how you get to the mechanics or the other way if that makes more sense too. Good question. Everyone heard that? Mm. Yeah. I'm not starting this one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think it depends on where that starting idea is. Uh, so if you if you start with just a mechanical idea, um, you can then do the, do the reverse of what we were talking about before. Of what kind of emotion do you want to uh, evoke from your players using this mechanic? What are you hoping to get out of it? For instance, uh, when starting Quirky Circuits that I'm talking about, and the name here gives it away, the mood that I was going for wasn't like highly tactical <laughs> strategy crunchy stuff it was what wacky hijinks can we make these robots do yeah. uh, so like you, starting with the mechanic and then kind of feeding into what kind of an emotion do you want to uh, lead you to um, when you're doing the playtesting you can kind of see is is the game going toward that emotion or is it going off in a different direction mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and with some games it's basically what emotion do you want to evoke? Base your mechanics off that emotion if that's how you like to do it, or do it the opposite. Find a mechanic and say, okay, how can I make this work? What do I want this mechanic to make people feel? So, like, we have a dog game right now we're working on where there's dogs in animal shelters, and they have to be taken care of. And if you don't take care of them, they go to the farm in the sky. So it's that kind of opposition feeling of, yeah, I'm doing something really good by taking care of these dogs, oh, but these ones I'm not taking care of that aren't getting picked, they're going to go away. So it's that push and pull sort of feel. If you like um, Smirk and Dagger, Smirk and Laughter, they've got some really good emotional games. Uh, Paramedics Clear is another one where it's on a timer. You get one minute to quickly go through a deck and try and save somebody's life while the app is going beep, beep, beep right in your ear. So it's that kind of feeling that you want to get across while you're playing your game, which is probably your a good starting point. Yeah, I just made a change to my ghost prototype uh, just recently because people were saying, oh, well, these haunt cards you have aren't thematic. Like, mechanically, they make sense, but how are they part of the game? Mm-hmm. I changed that by putting names on them. So now this haunt card, oh, the one player loses a worker and there's a safety inspection oh, well, that was a workplace accident. A worker has now broken their leg. That's, um, so just by labeling them and giving them names, all of a sudden it's now thematic. Mm-hmm. So it can be something as simple as that. I'm a very mechanics-focused mm-hmm. uh, designer. I start with a theme, but then it all is mechanics, and I have to remind myself, right, like put words on these cards so that players know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, I had something to it, too. I'm the moderator, but I have this <laughs> quote that I just read in New York Times. Um, I forget her last name, Elizabeth something. Her just right. as a, Yeah, thank you. <laughs> just in Wingspan. Um, and in there, there was a great reference to a book. I haven't read it yet, but I took a photo of the screen because I was like, that's a great quote for something that I need to chase down this book. But there's a book called Eight Kinds of Fun. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, I haven't read it yet, but uh, they list these as the eight, and I think these are interesting to think through when you're thinking theme and mechanic and what is fun. Uh, the eight listed are sensation, fantasy, narrative, challenge, fellowship, discovery, expression, and submission. So depending on what kind of experience we're talking about, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of moods or what kind of moments you're trying to create, then maybe it's one of those because there's just different types of fun for different types of people. So mm -hmm. maybe see if, if you're trying to capture one of those, more of those. And, and her, her uh, challenge or the question she, she asks her, herself while she designs is how many of these am I using? So mm -hmm. I think that's an important question you could ask yourself as you're trying to go through that process. What was that called? Uh, and it's called Eight Kinds of Fun. Kinds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if the book's good, but at least that <laughs> sounded interesting. So any other questions? Uh, we'll go over here. Um, you mentioned just, just a little bit, but it, when it comes to now, I've noticed uh, a lot more um, connection to stuff on the apps. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have an app associated with it or YouTube videos on how to play. How um, important is that become now for your board games? To Interesting. Have reliance on that or? I hate apps <laughs> We'll just put it right out there. Yeah. Tell, us what, tell us how you're interested. Should we be sitting next to each other? <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. Fight, fight, fight. No, oh. I've, like, and I've played games where the apps are integral and great. But then in five years, is that company still going to be maintaining that app? Or is that, or are they not? And the app goes obsolete, and now you can't play the game. Well, VHS games are still awesome, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I just played Atmosphere last week on VHS. <laughs> There's no. a well. Show your age, Yeah. <laughs> I was around for VHS. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I have partially the same issue, but I'm kind of on the fence about it. If the app is great and it's integral and it's fantastic, awesome, use it. Have a rule book backup. I, I'd say the total opposite. So I'll be like devil's advocate yeah. just to jump in. But I think there's an awesome opportunity to make games that we couldn't do before. Oh, yeah. And for sure. so, like, for example, <laughs> I have a, a small game called Shopping Time, mm -hmm. and it's a game where you get to grocery shop. Uh, but the grocery store has items from all over time. And so as you collect like uh, a baseball glove from 1930 and you get like a, a pound of butter from 1975 or whatever, uh, you're collecting these things and it's kind of like supermarket spree and you check out and the checkout process is you just put your phone on the box and you get the little beep sound and you go like through with the items you collect. And the point was like we wanted to make a game that you didn't learn the values of the individual cards, you just got your total. Mm -hmm. And so you could replay and you could do different things. I just did not want to provide like a chart or a math thing or anything. I, like the most boring thing I could have done was like, now add all that math. The beauty is that like we were walking around with supercomputers. Like uh, we, if we could use that yeah. so that but like... But not everyone has a smartphone. But someone statistically at your table does. But how accessible do you want your game to be? I, I'm okay with it. Almost everyone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just, just realizing that you possibly could be limiting your market. Yeah. Good. But some games do fantastically with having apps. Some games rely mostly on the app, but it's 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 dependent on the game itself. It's very dependent on the type of game that you're trying to make and what that app is doing for your game. So is your app your moderator, right? Or is it a mechanic of your game? 
those are two different types of things that the same app could do. So it depends on what exactly you're trying to get out of the app and how it connects. Yeah. In terms of, of digital, uh, you know, replacing things that could exist in physical, like having your rule book in a digital format, that doesn't even need an app. Uh, but all of those things are useful, yeah. and it's still good to have the physical yeah. piece of it, like you were saying. Uh, but then uh, what Daryl is saying is also true. Like There are definitely things that we can do in the digital space that is impossible to do or just so clunky or hard to do yeah. in a physical space that uh, it's easier to just do it in digital. Yeah. And uh, two of my games, Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition and yeah. XCOM, the board game, play in that space. The apps mm-hmm. for those games are integral to the experience. Mm-hmm. Those games wouldn't yeah. actually function without the app. Yeah. Uh, and it does limit, of course, yeah. our yeah, player base to yeah. a, a group that has the, the ability to have a smartphone or a tablet. Um, yeah. Luckily, those two games, I guess not luckily, it was planned this way. Those yeah. two games are, are multiplayer cooperative yeah. and they only require a single device. Yeah. Um, that was intentional so that as long as someone in the group has a Access. device that can do that, yeah. uh, that group is able to play that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, we've got a, a, probably two, three more questions. So I'm going to actually go with you first, but we'll try to get a couple more in here. Yeah, that's a big question. I like it. Very I like good it. Question. That's a that's a very wide, broad question. Can I uh, can I go to some Mark Rosewater isms here? Yeah. Absolutely. Go for it. All right. So this applies specifically to Magic: The Gathering, but it can absolutely be broadened to all games in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is something they figured out just years and years ago of what are players trying to get out of Magic: The Gathering. And they identified three player psychographics, which they call Timmy, Johnny, and Spike. And they later added Tammy and Jenny to be a little bit more inclusive. Uh, Spike is gender neutral, yeah. so there you go. Uh, the, the point of these three psychographics is what those players are looking for from a game, and also noting that you might be multiple of them, or even all three of them. So uh, Tammy and Timmy are looking for an experience. They want to just have the story or something really cool to happen in the game. Uh, Jenny and Johnny are looking for uh, expressing themselves through gameplay. So they are going to, in non-magic terms, they're going to tend to like uh, customizable games or maybe uh, engine building games where they get to kind of do their own thing and it's maybe a very complex way to do something that didn't need to be that complex, but that's what they like about it. Yeah. Uh, and then Spike is looking for uh, proving something. Mm. Oftentimes in competitive games, that means proving that they can win, but that's not necessarily what they're trying to prove. They might just be trying to prove that they are capable of you know, building something that does something unique yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Another question? Other than the dollar store, is there a great little place in Toronto where you could buy game parts and card stock or whatever? Or even online? I can think of some things. You're the only one who lives in Toronto. I don't live in Toronto. I mean, I can recommend some stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Basically, 
usually some conventions will have stuff. So all of our cards that we've gotten that I've handed out to you guys, we picked up for free at a protospiel. They just had tables and tables of stuff. And at the end of the convention, Kevin was like, oh, nobody's going to take this stuff. Where are my reusable bags? Let's go. <laughs> let's take all of it. Yeah, I mean, even uh, raiding like Goodwills and yeah. uh, you name it, they have mm-hmm. they have board game sections mm-hmm. uh, and affordable games. I pillage those all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned already conventions, but some of the booths that that are representing mm-hmm. different companies, like there's they people like Game Crafter, there's people like Print and Play mm-hmm. Studios, there's uh, Game Maker, but uh, Board Game Maker. There's uh, there's a few different companies, and what I'd suggest is even connecting to events like Proto Spiels and Proto TO. They already are going to be able to recommend mm-hmm. a lot of places where you can get those kind of components or get your prototypes made or those kind of services as well. And then uh, last but not least, sometimes some game stores and some of the game cafes, because they have to do things like, for instance, I used to buy meeples all the time through Snakes and Lattes, mm-hmm. because they were already buying huge orders to do like replacement parts mm-hmm. because of the cafes and I would jump in on those orders. So that's an example of like network even with each other and getting on an order. And, uh, and like Nikki already said earlier, don't be afraid to steal components from other games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like totally, if it's there and you're like, yeah, this is what I want, go ahead and take it. Just make like a little note saying, by the way, don't loan this game out. I just want to add to that. Yeah, please. So there, I know the board game list. Sometimes they yep. sell components. Mm-hmm. Board game list does sell components. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or I make like an order through BGG or yep. something. If anybody else wants in, I just exactly. go. I don't need fifty cubes. You want half of them? And yeah. Then we mm-hmm. split the bill. Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. And then someone actually suggested because B uh, board game list say they sold for a time like Northwind, and yep. they're all like really stupid cheap. Yep. And I go, why would you do that? And then someone said, well, they have a whole bunch of them. People can buy them for components yep. mm-hmm. and just tear it apart and yep. not worry about it. You yeah. know, you don't have to write notes about where you took it from. You don't no, care. It's just, Northland. Yeah. Just, it's the bits you needed. Yeah. Uh, one other source of components for very strange, unusual components, or if you even just want inspiration for mm-hmm. random componentry that you might have, is see if there's a surplus store mm-hmm. near you. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are stores that are basically just reselling all of the weird random yeah. junk that didn't sell from other retailers. Yeah. Uh, there's one near where I live, and you can walk in there and find just the weirdest yeah. stuff. They just have, like, racks of cowboy hats and yeah. and pool noodles and stuff. Obviously, that's go. not useful for hey, game that's design. that's a party game. That's, but, a, that's a cowboy <laughs> pool game. But they also just have, like... Shelves of tiny glass bottles. Sure. And, like, that is absolutely something that you can use yeah. in a board game. So a store like that can... Uh, you just wander around in there and see all the weird stuff that clearly someone was selling at some point. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We're going to go last question. We're done. Oh, we're done. All right. We're done. So <laughs> thank you. Can a uh, round of applause for our panelists here? And... Uh, feel, I'm going to speak on their behalf. Feel free to talk to them. They're all really nice people, and you can ask them questions if you have stuff. But my recommendation is kind of work your way out of the room for the next thing and have the conversation flow somewhere not in that hall because it's a choke, choke point. Can I have my prototype cards back? Yeah. <laughs>